now we are at the end of the journey. Um, what I want to do is spend today wrapping up and just talking. So I'll be there. We won't be doing small groups today. It'll just be large group kind of discussion, and I'll be doing a little more teaching today. Um, I want to finish up something that we kind of started yesterday but didn't totally get to talk through. Um, but just thinking through what is the call of Israel and how that maps onto the life and the ministry and the struggle of Jonah, right? So, again, I mentioned it yesterday. If you look at Exodus 19, we're going to pick it up in verse 4 through 6. This is a really pivotal text, like hugely pivotal text that gets referred to, interacted with, throughout the rest of the Old Testament and even into the New. And so, the children of Israel standing at the foot of Mount Sinai, and this is what God says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you out on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession out of all the peoples. Indeed, the whole earth is mine, but you shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And these are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. And so I want to make sure that we kind of grab a couple of things. Okay, one is I really want to drive home this reality of Sinai's wedding ceremony. Okay, that God has brought his people to the mountain. He is there with them. And he is pledging, I will be your God. I take you. You will be my people. And what is the call out of that? The call is not to do a whole bunch of stuff. The call is to what? To be with him, right? And to be a priestly kingdom, to be a kingdom of priests. As a nation, their calling was to stand between God and the rest of the world. That's what a priest does. A priest stands between God and the people. As a nation, that is what they were called to do. Their being a special people of God was not for themselves. It was, but it wasn't just for themselves. They were called, God was calling them to be his people so that through them he could bless the whole earth. I mean, that's the promise to Abraham. God calls Abraham so that he could bless the world through Abraham. Now we've got the children, the people of Abraham, the descendants. And God is calling them and saying, I'm going to make a special covenant with you. I'm going to make a relationship with you that I don't have with any other people so that you can be for me a kingdom of priests. And I think it's really important that we get that. And that we just understand this is the calling of Israel. So, and as we go through scriptures, what we find, especially in the historical books, is they end up renewing this covenant. They do covenant renewal ceremonies. So Joshua, the beginning chapters of Joshua are wild, right? God calls Joshua, he's ready, and he's ready to lead them into the promised land, and then what happens? The river parts. Well, the river parts as a way of God showing his power in the same way he parted the sea. This is the children of those people. 
Right? This is the second generation of God's covenant people. Then what happens? As soon as they enter the land, the men are circumcised. What? No military sense. You enter the foreign territory, the first thing you do is take the warriors out for several days. Why would you do that? It's reminding them of whose they are and what the call in their life is. They're going to enter this land, and Deuteronomy makes it clear to the people, this land is a gift. You have not earned it. I am empowering you to take this land partially in judgment on the people of the wickedness that's been there before you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. This is absolute gift. The land is mine, God says, and I am gifting it to you. And so that's what happens. They get into the land, and the first thing they do is it's a reminder whose they are, what they are. Then they celebrate Passover. Bam, bam. Right? The reminder of this is not just about them. This is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, God's promises that have been there for generations. It's a reminder of the story. It's a reminder of the history. It's a reminder of the God and his faithfulness through the generations, the story that they're living into, and the story that they're supposed to live out of as they take this land. And then, halfway through the conquest, they actually do a covenant renewal ceremony, just as Moses had told them to do. Why would you do that? Again, it's a reminder. That land sat on Israel, what we think of as Israel-Palestine today, right? That, that, the Levant, whichever way you want to use it, right? Sat on the main crossroads of the ancient world. So if you're going to go from Turkey, kind of the Near East, down into Egypt and North Africa, you have to go there. If you're going to go east into Arabia, you've got to go there. The main trade routes through that whole region were through that land. That's not a mistake. Right? The whole idea was that this was supposed to be God's people living as his people, as a kingdom of priests. And as people went through their travel, through their business, through there, they encountered something different. Their lives were meant to be lived as a missionary calling on their lives. Right? And Solomon dedicates the temple. This, I mean, what does it say? God, if when the nations hear about you and they come and they pray, answer their prayer so that they will know who you are. Right? When Jesus cleans out the temple, in the New Testament, what's he cleaning out? He's cleaning out the court of the Gentiles. The place where the Gentile nations would have been coming to seek the Lord had been filled with all of the marketplace and everything. Because in that day, they didn't have, right, again, Israel had lost its calling. Completely lost its calling. 
And they had made temple worship about themselves and they forgot that space that was reserved for the Gentiles of the world, the non-Israelites to come and to interact with and to know and to pray to the God of the universe. Those who would be curious, who would want to learn more, right? That's where they would go. And so when Jesus steps in and he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And he begins, he quotes Isaiah 55 that talks about, 55, 56, that talks about, don't let those who are Gentiles say they don't have their place with me. Those are the scriptures in Mark that Jesus is quoting. Like he's intentionally reminding Israel of the call. This is who they're called to be. And as you read, it's never truly realized. It's not. They never quite get it. They're never fully able to live in a way that they are able to be the people that God was calling them to be. To be that kingdom of priests. And so that is where, as you get into the prophets, we mentioned yesterday, they start talking about, hey, God's going to come, he's going to put his laws on your heart. Hey, there's a new heart that's coming that God's going to place in you so that you can live this out and you can be who he's calling you to be. And then when you get to 2 Peter, I'm sorry, it's not 2 Peter, it's 1 Peter, Peter. Right? He says these famous words, but you're a chosen race and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Right? And so Peter's applying this same passage and this same language and idea and calling. <coughs> To the church. <coughs> this is who you're called to be, folks. That's what Peter's saying. As you're scattered out apart, as you're facing persecution, as you're facing difficulty, this is who you're called to be. And this is what life is meant to be. And so this is the calling that gets mapped. That's just nonsense, not mentioned. But it sits behind the book of Jonah. And so as you look at this, and you look at Jonah, and you realize Jonah's a representative, basically, of all of Israel. The way Jonah handles the call to the nations is the way Israel has handled the call to the nations. And the challenge then is to see the heart of the Father pulsing behind the book of Jonah. A God who, even with this, what's his eye on? Man, I love you and you're my people, but really, I want the world to know. I want the world to come to know me. And how's he going to do it? He's going to create a people for himself so that they then can go with him and he can send them into the world to be his image, to, to represent him, to bear his name so that others can come to know who he is. Any questions about this? If there were all of these covenants, the last covenant was um, a reminder of the covenant with Abraham. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. Now, when you go into the New Testament, would, mm -hmm. are, is there a new covenant for the given people that were Israelites, or was that covenant between, um, you know, like, like the disciples? I, I'm confused about whether or not there were promises to be made in the New Testament as well. There are. Right. So, again, long, like, great question. Okay. Like, we could spend a week just talking about that question. <laughs> okay. Well, could we spend a few minutes? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, I, I, you know, I just wanted to say that because any answer I give is going to be naturally incomplete just because it's such a rich thing that runs through. So, when Jesus Jesus is the beginning of the new covenant. Right. Right? I mean, that's what he says at the Passover meal with his disciples when he's reinterpreted the night before he died. This is the new covenant in my blood. There is no lamb. It's him. He is the lamb. He is the one that makes peace with God. He is the one through whom God now arranges his people. Right? And the, the mystery that Paul talks about in the New Testament is that the people of God is no longer just Jew. It gets expanded to Jew and Gentile through Jesus. The Ephesians passage that was read last night, that, you know, um, before you were aliens, let me just pull it off. Because I'll, I'll quote it in part, and it won't do it justice. Um. <clears throat> Ephesians 2.11, Paul says, So then, remember at one time you were Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who were called the circumcision. A physical circumcision made in flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, Jesus, is our peace. <laughs> And in his flesh, he's made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinance that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. And might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross. Thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who are far off the Gentiles, and peace to you who are near, the Jews. For through him both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So what he did, because Jesus became the center of the way that we relate to the Father. And he redefined all of this. But, I would argue there's still this pattern. Right? We were created for good, we have been damaged or marred by sin. We are now redeemed in Christ. We are made right and brought back with him. And that is the covenant. One more time. In the, okay, created for good. Yeah. Right? Damaged by sin. Yeah. We, talk, we kind of talked through this yesterday a little bit. Redeemed by Jesus. Right. We have been brought back into relationship from the with the Father through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that, in his death, resurrection, and ascension, we now have life through him. 
and he undoes the power of sin, and he begins to undo the impact of sin, and he takes what was a dividing wall, whether it's between individuals or whether it's between ethnic groups, and he begins to replace that with the cross. And the division that we found in our hearts, he begins to heal. And the division that we find with each other, he begins to heal as God forms one new humanity. He's forming a people. So that what? So that then he sends that people out into the world so that he can begin to redeem, repair the world in partnership with us. He doesn't save us for us to stay here by ourselves. Right? Because the book of Matthew was the last thing Jesus says. All authority had been given to me. Now, go. And proclaim the good news. What good news? This good news. His life, death, and resurrection. And make disciples. Baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And what? I am with you. Even until the end of the world. We're meant to hear echoes of Genesis 1 there, I think. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And subdue it. That it's the resurrected Lord Jesus that stands and in some ways gives a new creation blessing for his people. Because what he wants to do is, he is always God's plan. The pattern has been to create a people... And to work with the people so that that people can begin to impact the world and bring release to the captives, proclaim good news to the poor, and allow it to be just and to in healthy ways. Now, we abuse this at times, and we, we throw kingdom language on things that actually aren't kingdom priorities, right? But in a good, healthy way, he wants to extend his kingdom to a broken creation, and we get to be a part of what God is doing. That is our invitation. And so that is the pattern. And so what does Jesus do when he, I would argue, when Jesus shows up and he begins to create a new covenant, it is new, and it is better, and it is more powerful, but it is not completely radically different from the patterns that have gone before. It is the ultimate fulfillment of the plan and the covenant that God has been working through the whole time. And the mystery that Paul and the, the New Testament authors talk about, this thing that was hidden that was now revealed is that it was one nation, Jew and Gentile. Like nobody saw that coming. And that it was through a suffering Messiah. Nobody saw that one coming. But it was there in the Old Testament. And it was hidden. And they just missed it. And so when Jesus, post-resurrection, walks with the folks of the Emmaus. And he stays with his disciples. <coughs> and it says he opens their eyes and he walks with them through the scriptures. He's walking them through the Old Testament showing how, hey, yeah, it was necessary for the Messiah to die and rise. This has been the plan all along. And so this is the pattern and kind of the, the background, I would say, in some way. The, the thrust of what Scripture is about. This is the plan of redemption. That we are redeemed from sin. And we are redeemed to be 
the people of God. Together, sent out on mission to love and extend God's kingdom in the way of Jesus, which is going to be cruciform, it's going to be cross-shaped, to begin to be part of God's healing of broken and hurting world. So in Jonah, this is what actually God is trying to do for Jonah. Why is God going into all of what he does to capture Jonah's heart, to woo his mind, to, to bring Jonah onto God's side as an ally in God's mission to reach Nineveh and really to reach the world? What is God doing? I think he's doing this. He's trying to get Jonah to take this step. Yeah, you're my and you're my people. But this isn't the end of the story. This is. I want you to have my heart. I want you to see my vision. I want you to understand what I'm about. And I want you to be part of what I am doing to redeem and to save the nation. Any questions about that? So basically, you know, in the lower left-hand corner, once we're there, now it's our job to go up to the upper right corner and, and teach those people and show them what's in the lower right corner, and that just gets to be a circle with us. In, in some ways, right, I think this is the thrust. I mean, this is, this, anytime you have a diagram, right, yeah. you, you naturally simplify. A lot of times... The, the thing is, though, what happens in one of the ways you, we use this diagram, this is actually an evangelistic diagram. It's created by InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. So this isn't with me. But I think what they do there is map this biblical story for us. And when they use this, they use this in evangelistic kind of ways, outreach ways, especially with um, university-age students. Like, this is Gen Z stuff. Okay? Um, but I think what they tap into is this bigger biblical pattern and that's what I've kind of pulled it for right that it's not just me and Jesus it's us as a people being sent as a people right and the impulse that happens in our world is we all know the world is broken we feel that it's unjust we feel right we know the hurt the pain and we want to fix it. And so sometimes though what we do is we want to jump from here to here. And we want to bypass cross. Right? We want to bypass this work of salvation. Not just initial, but I would argue discipleship. This ongoing salvation in life that Jesus wants to bring into our lives. Of undoing the patterns and the habits of our culture and the mindsets. We, we need our minds, as Paul talks about, renewed. Right? We need to not be squeezed into the mold of the world, but we need our minds renewed. And so if we jump from here to try to fix it, we're going to fail because we can't do it. We don't have the power to do it. We're going to mess it up. We're going to use worldly ways. We're going to try to step in and like just force people to become who we want them to be. But that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is a sacrificial life lived in love. 
That's the new covenant. That inspires people and opens their mind to see the love of the God that sits behind them. Right? And so so the call is sometimes as a church, and even as you're using this with Christian students on campus, my IV friends will say, you know what? It's really easy to be here. We're all good, right? We know Jesus. Out here is scary. Out here is messy. This feels known. It feels safe, and we get stuck here. And I think sometimes, even sometimes I think when we talk about the gospel growing up, it didn't include this. It was a three frame. Mm-hmm. You're created, God created the world for good. Sin spoiled it and it spoiled your life and you've made bad choices and you're separated from God. You need Jesus to redeem you. Mm-hmm. And it stops. <laughs> but it's this final thing that I think taps into this biblical pattern of God redeeming a people to send out. And it doesn't. And so that impulse we find in the New Testament is actually there in the Old Testament. It just looks a little different. It just looks a little different than what we normally think about it as. Yeah? I was just going to say it seems like it's part of, I'm just I'm going to keep it American, usually world. But um, it seems like American culture, that last part, these days are two parts. They want somebody else to go out and do the work. People like yourself and other witnesses that go around the world. It seems like Americans, we have a problem. We're going out to do the work. We want somebody else to do it instead of ourselves going out and doing the work that we're supposed to do. Because we're fearful. We're frightful. Well, it's, I think it's fearful. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something, and I hope you'll hear my heart behind it. Because I'm going to make a statement that's going to be very unpaint with a broad brush, right? So just hear my heart behind it, and I'm happy to talk about it. I think sometimes those of us who are pastor types, in our need to be needed, we keep ourselves at the center of the ministry, and we don't empower the saints to do the work of ministry. And I think sometimes people feel like what it is. They don't know how to have gospel conversations with people, not because they can't. They just they don't know how to never asked, it's always been the pastor's job. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the pastor's job. Somebody needs to know, like, some, I'm visiting somebody and they have questions about faith. Well, I need to call the pastor and I need the pastor to go and talk with them. And actually, I think when we see this as a people, God is forming a people that part of the role that we would play as pastors would be to help equip folks to be able to have the conversation. Because you're going to meet people in your office that I could never meet. The last place that I pastored, I would tell people, please don't introduce me as pastor. Don't call me Pastor Brian. Just don't do it. Because as soon as that word pastor comes up, there's a wall. And I'm not not begrudging the title pastor. And that may be very different in an African-American community. I know with some of the Africans in our church, right, they need that, right? There's a respect that is due the office of pastor, they would honor that. And it doesn't create that wall. But with white folks, it does. Because yeah. sure I'll be hanging out with somebody and they'll be, you know, they'll say a couple of words they probably shouldn't and they'll do this and they'll be like, what do you do? Well, I'm a pastor. <laughs> and then they don't know what to do and they're not sure. But if they know me as Brian first, 
there's a way that I get to recover that. And it builds a relationship. And so I think that part of what we're dealing with and the joy of this season and all of its messages in the church is that if we're wise, we can recover this and we can actually recover the priesthood of all believers. This thing that we say we believe in, but really we struggle to live into. And we, as pastors, can be secure enough and empower people and help them have conversations. And it's okay to say you don't know. And you don't have to be a professional. I think that's the other thing in our culture is we, as American culture, there is a place for professionals. And there's a place for people with advanced degrees. But I can tell you this, the church in Asia ain't growing because there's a whole bunch of people with advanced degrees around. <laughs> the church in Asia is growing because it's just normal everyday people who are encountering the love of Jesus and learning what it means to follow him and their lives are and, and lives are being turned upside down. And they're they're talking to friends and they're interacting with folks and they're doing things. Right? And so again, I think this is the this is the impulse that sits behind Jonah. And you have a God there who is going to reach and wants to reach the Ninevites. But he's doing his best to shape Jonah to be part of that. So that Jonah has his heart, so that Jonah understands what God's about, so that Jonah, the prophet, knows the heart of the Father and has just lost it. Is blown away by it. Right? Jesus' first sermon was, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. For me to announce good news to the poor. To set free the oppressed. Right? And to announce the year of the Lord's favor. Friends, I think we just need to recover that. We get to announce this is the year of the Lord's favor in Jesus. God is not against you. He's for you. And I think that's what we see in Jonah. Amidst all the struggle and all the things that God is trying to pull out of Jonah's heart. God's for it. That's about as long as I like to talk at any given time. Questions, comments. That's our commission. That's what we're going to set it to do. He's trying to get Jonah to do what he wants us to do, and we fight it, and so did he. Mm -hmm. And Jonah stuck in his, his past and what he used to be and what he wants to remain. But he has to change drastically to become what Jesus, what the Lord wants him to be. Right. There's so much to give up in this period. Culturally, right. Difficult. Right. That's absolutely right. There's so much to give up and to let go of, and things that he formed his identity around that he needed to kind of let go of a little bit, so that then he could embrace what the Father was actually, what God's heart actually was, and what God wanted to give him. Right. That's absolutely right, and that's the process. Right. That's the process of healthy deconstruction. That we we just want to want to land on today. Yeah, it's so easy to get caught up in all the problems in the world today, but there's the Holy Spirit is moving 
as never before. And yet, Israel, we support Messianic ministries. And there's still a wall there that Christians want to hurt Jews. That's what so many of them believe. And even those walls are falling down. But when you talk about you know, going into the world, uh, as a Gideon, God's word has never, I mean, the people you minister to, they have God's word in their heart language now. Mm -hmm. They have it. Yeah. And we started handing out Gideon Bible apps. I remember the first one I handed out to a guy from uh, Jakarta at MSU about six years ago. He was so excited that he could get God's holy word. He said, I don't want any of those other, I want to know the God of this book. Right. And I said, well, here you go. Right. And that app at that time had about 1,100 different translations, maybe 1,200. Now that same app carries over 1,800 yeah. translations right. of God's word in people's heart languages, right. spoken, written. Right. These last days, uh, the resources are there, aren't they? It's it's, it's in, in the, that's the paradox. Here we got all yeah. these tools, all these tools, and we need to be using them and just sharing God's, our Lord and Savior, the Creator, right. that shed His blood for your sins. He's got a beautiful plan for your life. Right. No matter where you're at, if you're a multi-billionaire or starving to death, he's got a beautiful plan for your life and he loves you. And and the thing about it is though, is I, I wanna I want us to get lost for just a little bit in the heart of God and Jonah. Yeah. I want you to just be amazed by the invitation that's there, by the length that God is willing to go by what he's hoping to do, by God's heart for the world, by his love for Jonah, right? Because I think what happens sometimes is this. This is true. We exchange God's story for a lesser story. We exchange the gospel story, this thing that we saw, God redeeming a people for himself and us being his people and being able to be part of what God is doing in the world. And if we're not careful... This is not left or right. Okay? We exchange that story for some sort of political power. We exchange that story for some sort of a, a life of monetary ease. We exchange that story for something that's less than. And in doing so, we end up missing what God is doing. But the great thing about the love of God for us is that God isn't content to let us exchange it. That he will do things to call us back to himself. To remind us of who he is and what the story of the gospel is. What it means to proclaim good news to the poor. To be able to be those that announce, hey, this is the year of the Lord's favor. Ways to see oppressed. Go free. We get to live into this. And so what we want to be able to do is 
just become enamored again, to fall in love again with the gospel of the story of God that he's writing in our world and in our lives. And know again, as, as um, Jason has pointed us to in the evenings, the hope that's there. Hey, you know, we may be in the middle of the story, but this is where it's going to end. That Jesus is Lord, and he will reign, and this is what's going to happen. And God will make all things new, and all tears will be dry, and we will be his people with him forever. But there is an end to this story that is just full of hope. And that hope reverberates down into where we are now and gives us the ability to live well. If you look at the story of Jonah, right? Jonah's not a story about a list of things you do or don't do to make you a good person. This isn't a story of, like, self-improvement. Jonah tells us that the God of the universe is pursuing the world. And he's wooing us so that we can become those who join his work in the world. He's passionately wooing us to form his heart in us. But that means we're going to have to let some things go. And that means we're going to have to let him tear some things out of our hearts. And that means he's got, we're going to have to let him reorient us in ways. And so this is going to lead us naturally we're going to live into the story that Jonah is calling us to live into, it's going to lead us into some spiritual formation discussions of how is it that we get spiritually formed to be God's people? What does the call of discipleship look like? And how do we do it? Robert Mulholland gives this definition of spiritual formation. It's the one that I really like. Spiritual formation is a process. This, I've added this. I'm sorry. This is in your notes. I'll, I'll find a way to get this to Kindle so you guys can have it. I've, I've added this based on some of the discussion, listening to some of the discussion that we had this past week. Um, so, But I'll make sure that you guys get this info. Uh, spiritual formation is the process of being transformed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. It's the process. Being conformed. It's not something we get to do for ourselves. The image of Christ that we begin to take on the heart and the character of Jesus. And that is for the sake of others. It means that we are going to hit walls in life and we are going to feel disoriented. Any books you read on spiritual formation, and if we just went around the room, you're going to find times in life where you just feel like spiritually you hit a wall. It could be something that happens to you, grief, loss, a job loss. It could be some sort of a traumatic event that goes through. It can all of a sudden be you're, you feel like life is cruising along, and all of a sudden all the ways that you've been praying, it just feels like the heavens are brass. God just seems like like it used the things that used to bring you such spiritual comfort now feel like they're just hard and you don't feel that anymore. We will hit walls. It's just part of walking with Jesus. It's part of what God does as he begins to work and he continues to work in our lives. And when we hit these walls, we're going to feel disoriented. 
And we look and we go, okay, is there anything, to, like, is there known sin? Like, am I doing it? And you're like, no. I, nothing that I know, right? I'm, but so then what's going on? Why is it like this? Why does it feel so hard? And sometimes in church, we can make it feel like walking with Jesus is just into ever-increasing joy all the time. But that's not the way it is, right? We hit walls. Life is hard. Some of this is struggle. And so, um, when we hit walls, I'm going to throw out some, some verbiage here and we'll talk about it. Walls call us to have to deal with our false self. I'll unpack that in a minute. That image of our who we are that we project to other people. Walls will often have us have to deal with our family origin stuff. We'll hit a point and be like, oh man. And as we begin to dig around, we realize actually what God is doing is he's undoing some unhealth in my, my family of origin. Right? There's some things, some things that I'm carrying. Because I don't care. I know as a dad, there are gaps. I parent to the best that I can. But there are gaps, there are weaknesses, and that creates pain in my kids' lives. And at some point, Jesus will heal that. But in order to heal it, he's got to bring it up to the surface. And it hurts. Right? It just hurts when he does that. Same thing is true in our spiritual family of origin. I think part of what God does, too, is he begins to bring things up. Because just like with a family of origin... Any church we're a part of is going to have gaps. There are going to be things about the gospel they emphasize that are good. There are going to be some things they leave out. It's just the way churches are because we're human. We can't talk about everything all the time. <coughs> and there are going to be some things that in our church cultures are really healthy. And then there are going to be some things that are kind of unhealthy. And in order for us to really be able to walk with Jesus... And us to be able to be those who are investing in other people. He's going to have us hit some walls in life where some of these deals with our spiritual family of origin begin to pop up. Right? You're going to have to learn how to lament. You're going to have to learn how to deal with prayers that aren't answered. And we don't, I didn't grow up in churches that dealt a whole lot. Right? There's things that God is going to do to deepen us, to mature us, that are only going to happen as we hit walls and as he begins to form us. And that's really what we find in the book of Jonah. Jonah hits a wall. God is trying to call him to do something. Jonah's like, no, not those people. They're my enemies. Not those people. They're not your people. Not those people. They're violent. Not, not, not. And God is like, okay. But <laughs> this is where you need to be. And so one of the passages that I've been kind of wrestling with is this. And I think it fits with this. Jesus' invitation, come to me all that you are weary and are carrying heavy burdens and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you've walked with Jesus any point in time, there are times you laugh at that last sentence. Because <laughs> it doesn't always feel easy. And it dang straight doesn't always feel light. But what I'm coming to realize is when that happens sometimes, 
the other, there's, there's something else going on. Okay? Sometimes it's because I'm carrying a yoke that's not his. That's right. And we all do. We evolve from family of origin, from growing up where we are, from false self. The false self, as we talk in spiritual formation, is that, that identity we create for ourselves to make us feel loved and safe. Right? And we need that, like all of us. It's something that we need out of self-protection when we're kids and when we're younger. And it's, it's just, it just is. It's part of what is. And it's something that's necessary for us to be able to exist in a world that is sinful and broken and painful. But as we walk with Jesus, what we find is that false self gets in the way of the true self that God is recreating us to be in Christ. And there will be times we will hit walls so that God can help us to recognize these areas where we're drawing our identity and our life from things that aren't from Him. And so that we can let those be put to death and we can receive the life and the identity that's for him. For me, growing up, I wasn't an athlete. I wasn't a cool kid. I was definitely not the kid in high school or even in junior high that was anywhere near comfortable around women. I was the awkward, geeky kid. But I was smart. And so I needed to be the smartest guy in the room. So that I could feel like I was respected and loved. Cared for. And at some point, I also, because of my... Because of the work of grace God was doing in my life, right, I became the spiritual kid. And so being the smartest and being the most spiritual, kind of the ways that I got noticed, that I received approval, that I was shown like you are somebody and validated. Now, is that necessarily wrong? No. But I can tell you that's false self. Just is, and we've all got it. And God will take us into walls so that that gets revealed and so that He can begin to deal with it. And sometimes that happens quickly, and sometimes that is a crucifixion, is a long, painful death over an extended time. And like grief, it'll even come in waves. As Jesus begins to rewire us. To say, no, your identity is found in me. It's a gift that is given because of who I am and what I've done. It is not something that you earn. This is what we see happening in Jonah. That God is rewiring him. And that false self is one of the yokes we take on that's not from Jesus. And the expectations of others. And we want to please everybody and make them like us. And we want to be seen as popular. And we want to be, you fill in the blanks for whatever it is, right? We take on yokes that are not from Jesus. And those yokes drive us. And they actually stunt our growth in Jesus. 
and they keep us from experiencing the life that he wants to give us. Part of the process of discipleship is going to be, I think if we were to look back at our lives, if God would give us the ability and the grace to do that, we're going to see yokes. The process of discipleship is going to be one to where there's going to be a line behind us by God's grace of all of these yokes that he's helped us throw off over the years. And as we throw them off, and as his yoke, his yoke becomes primary, it's not easy, but we find life. And we learn from him. And we learn to walk with him and what it means. And his heart gets formed in us. And we get lost in the love and the grace and the deep story of God. And we find ourselves being given life by Jesus. So, healthy deconstruction is when Jesus begins to show us the things from the family of origin, from our own false self, and from our experience of Christianity up to this point. We're not jettisoning him, but there's some things that are yokes that have been placed that aren't healthy, aren't good, aren't from him. And he's inviting us to cast them off. Okay? And that takes, and that's hard, and it feels scary, and it feels disorienting because we feel like if we're going to throw this off, then we're opening ourselves up to all kinds of unknown chaos out there. All right? But if we're walking with him and we're doing this in community, what gets rebuilt back is a stronger faith and a deeper devotion to Jesus and the ability to find freedom because we're not carrying a yoke that's not his. Sometimes this process may take a short time. Sometimes it may take a long time. And it can be disorienting for us. But healthy deconstruction, just like with Jonah, God is the one that was driving that. And God is the one that was at work. Because God had a purpose to put his heart and wanted to give Jonah a life. And he wanted him to know it. And he wanted Jonah to just experience his love and also to live out of that. And to be a blessing to those around him. Where things go squirrely is this. It's when people do the deconstruction journey. Um, and some of this stuff is happening. They have questions. They have doubts. They have fears. Right? And either you're trying to, you're doing it in a place where there is no ability to ask questions. You just get shut down. And then that just intensifies everything. Because what happens then is people go looking for a place to have a community where they can kind of process this journey with. And now, if you turn to the internet, you can fall down some rabbit holes that are just not <coughs> And you end up with people that are not just trying to get you to take off a yoke that's too much. They want you to throw off the whole yoke of everything. 
You don't need faith. You don't need his, you know, Jesus can be who you want him to be. Okay? And it becomes this really wild, really toxic, really like, there is no rebuilding of this. It's just we're going to tear everything down to the studs and leave you standing there going, okay, now what do I do? Well, we don't know. But God bless you, be free, right? You're free. You don't have any constraints on your life. Go live your life in joy, right? People are just like, you don't know what to do. Okay? And that's the, that's the toxic, unhealthy version of this. And so part of what the story of Jonah invites us to is to figure out as well, how do we be a community of people that as we walk through these walls, and we will, and as others around us walk through these walls, and they will, how do we do this in a way that's healthy, and how do we begin to point people to Jesus? So I'm going to give you some tips. And these are mine. I don't, this is not a thus saith the Lord kind of thing. These are just practical things that as I've kind of interacted with people, and I've reflected on my own journey in times of disorientation, right? And some of these seasons are deeper and, and harder than others. The first one is just let people ask questions. I think one of the worst things we can do is to just shut people down if they have legitimate questions. We need to have a place. The Psalms are not scared of this. God, if you're good, why is this happening? God, if you're good, why do people suffer? Right? These are legitimate questions that we give voice to and that are part of us being humans and living in a very, very broken world that is marred by sin. Right? And so I think part of it is, is just let people ask some questions. Now, you know, we all know there are times when that gets to the point in time where people are just struggling and they're asking all the questions and not really looking for stuff. We can walk them through that. Okay. The second thing I just want to encourage us here is when people are asking questions, I mentioned this earlier in the week, we need to monitor our own like emotional temperature. We've got to watch our reactiveness. Because sometimes when people ask a question, they're asking a question we've been avoiding for a while and we're afraid of. And so it starts to make us nervous. Oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, they're asking that question and I can't ask that question because if I ask that question, it really feels like the whole thread of my faith is going to fall apart and I'm going to fall apart and I don't know, right? And so then we get reactive and we shut down or we go overboard. Sometimes we also get reactive because we're worried about the person and we just want to fix it and help them move on. And I think if we all can just think back of times... We know what that feeling feels like when somebody's having a conversation with you that makes you uncomfortable. And I think part of it is, is that learning how to monitor that anxiety that rises up in us and to take a deep breath and to trust Jesus and just be present for the person as they talk. Right? We're not going to give them 14 answers. We're not going to send them five websites. We're not going to give them books. We're not going to give them eight verses that tell them why they're wrong to have that question. Right? Because we're afraid. We're just going to be there with it. The next one is I think part of it, we grow in our muscles. What will help us walking with people who are disoriented 
is when we grow in our ability to sit and to understand grief and disappointment. Look, folks, sometimes when we're wrestling these walls and people are wrestling with these questions, the question is theological, but the question behind the question is disappointment. I didn't get what I wanted. I thought God was going to come through. I don't understand what's happening. And so the more we or I'm just sad and brokenhearted, I've been abused and hurt. I'm asking a theological question, which is legit and valid and they may have, but underneath it is this fear, this disappointment, this hurt that's there. And I think the more comfortable we get with just listening to disappointment and grief and loss, the less reactive we are, and the more we're just able to sit with people in it, the more healing we actually become to find. Right? That what sometimes what people want is they don't want to answer a theological question. They want to know, will somebody love me as I'm disappointed? Will somebody love me after I fail? Will somebody just be with me in the midst of my hurt and pain? I would right. just say that would somebody love me if they knew who I really was? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I'm going to be honest with you, and I'm not going to, there's not like I can't, I'm not going to give you a pat answer to this one. In our culture right now, with issues of gender and with issues of orientation, sexual orientation, that's going to be a big question. Can you sit with me as I struggle through some of this? Or are you going to, you know, will you kind of give me an answer, shut me down, and move on? Because you're so uncomfortable that you can't walk with me in this. Yeah, yeah I was just going to comment. I have a, some close friends that have gone down, completely down that path of, deconstruction and they were Bible teachers and whatever and then all of a sudden they've thrown away their entire faith and they have said to me you are the only Christian that we know that is comfortable still talking with us and being our friend and so at this point we are uh, agreed to disagree but not go too deeply into that disagreement because that's not where they're at yet they're ready to just continue that friendship. Right. And so, yeah, right. everybody else has turned away. Well, and, and let's be honest. I mean, I, I pray you hear my heart in this. I'm still struggling through all these issues as well, right? In our, right now, our American broader culture, and I would say at times even our church culture, we're really tribal. And we want to know, are you in with me? Are you part of my tribe or not? <laughs> And so sometimes we're asking these questions, and when people are like, well, you know, oh, you're one of those people, then we feel justified in stepping away. Out of fear that they're going to wreck our faith somehow, or out of fear that we're going to be painted in the eyes of our friends as progressive or conservative or social justice warrior or woke or whatever label we want to put on it. Right? Sometimes those labels have more to say about our fears and our need to be accepted by a tribe than it does about the gospel and about who we're actually called to be and what we're called to. 
And so the reality of it is, is I think sometimes that's part of monitoring our emotional temperature. And I'm telling you, it's hard, right? Because you've got a friend who's, I've got a friend right now that I'm wrestling through. We're not close, so I don't feel like I can be the person to step into it. Um, he's pastor, went through just a hellacious season um, with his church board. Just deep hurt, deep pain. Ended up leaving the church to plant another one. Um, that whole season of pain actually brought up a whole bunch of junk from his past. Where he grew up in a very harsh family, very limited, very narrow view of what it meant to follow Jesus. Right? And it collided in him in a spectacular way. And it's got him wrestling with questions. And the way that he's doing it right now is he's separated from his wife and continuing to pass to plant a church. And I'm I'm looking at this going, and the people around him, I don't think they're the right counselors to have. Because I think what you're gonna end up with is a you know. I think the whole follow your heart thing has to be qualified. You know, that sometimes we don't need to follow our heart. We need to follow Jesus. We need to let him set some standards for us and that we need to live into. And so, again, this stuff gets messy and it's hard, right? But the more we're able to do this too, then walk with them. Don't talk at them. Most of the time, folks, as they're wrestling with this stuff, and we know this from our own lives, we want relationship and presence. We need a friend. We don't need a person on <coughs> Google who's trying to give us all the information and tell us the reasons that we're wrong. Right? Our social media is, there's argumentative enough, right? We don't need another thing in our life or another way that we have people arguing with us. Right? So if we can just walk with them and be there, what will happen is eventually we'll earn the right to be heard because we're trustworthy. And it also means, folks, if you're in this place with people, guard confidence with them. Don't take this to four other people and kind of ask them to pray with you about this and share the story and do all the things because if it gets back to the person, it's toast. It's over. Okay? Really guard. This is sacred territory that you walk into. When they're disoriented and they're struggling and you're there with them and you're invited along on the journey, that's something that's sacred. And there's a way to go to a trusted advisor for you to get, to get help. And it's not yours to fix. That's the other thing I just want to encourage you. It's Jesus is to walk with this person. It's Jesus' to heal. It's not yours to try to fix. You're not going to have the silver bullet answer that's going to solve it. Point them as they struggle to the Gospels. Point them to Jesus in the Gospels. Especially folks that are struggling with church stuff. Just continue to point them back to the real Jesus in the Gospels. And then as they're ready, and there will come a time at some point, when they'll be ready for answers. They'll have processed the emotional side of things enough, and they'll be ready to kind of find answers, and there's answers to all questions. There's answers to stuff. 
be the person that helps them find them. You don't have to have them yourself. Connect them with somebody who's thoughtful, who's good, who will walk with you. Right? There's, there's good books out there. Um, as we're doing this whole process, one of the things we want to watch is remember those seasons of disorientation yourself that you've been through. Remember how it felt. Remember what you needed. Remember what that was like when God was asking you to let go of stuff. It's sometimes hard. That'll help you as you walk through it. And then finally, as we talked about the last time, we introduced the whole concept of bounded, centered, and fuzzy sets to you on the first day. Focus on the center set. Just point them to Jesus. Just continue to point them to Jesus. Just point them to Jesus. Remind them of the truth of the gospel. Remind them of what this is. Just point them to Jesus. Right? Let's not, don't get caught up in demanding a denominational thing or asking, you know, just point them to Jesus. Don't get lost in the political or those tribal boundaries that we have or how they can do this or just point them to Jesus. Just continue to point them to Jesus. And if we'll do that, actually sometimes what we'll notice is they're actually, it may feel like they're not, but they're actually turned towards Jesus and they're taking steps. And sometimes the battle is to go from here, where it feels like they're not ready to face him, and they're pointing away from Jesus, to turn him towards him with a new openness. Right? And sometimes that's like the big, the big piece of the battle. So that's a lot of information. And we've kind of drunk from a fire hose today. <laughs> so I want to give you time. Questions? Processing? I would just like to say that a lot of times, you know, if we're here in America, what I hear from the people of my church is, well, we can't do that. We don't have any power, blah, 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 blah. And convincing them that they're disciple world is their neighborhood is hard. It's the person next door. It's the right. person in the grocery store. You know, it's, right. It doesn't have to be global. Your world is right here and it's small. Right. I think sometimes too in the States we can fall into a superhero mentality where it's got to be one humongous gesture that fixes the whole thing. Right? Yeah. Where we're the Avengers and we sweep in and we save the city. And actually what we need to do is it's the everyday normal stuff. That actually the most power is found in just daily doing the everyday thing in small ways that add up over time. You know the other thing I've heard lately, heard it in sports, but I've heard it in other things too, with America or anywhere, just trust the process. It may not be a superhero swoops in and fixes it right away. Everything's a process. This deconstruction, I mean, that's a process. Mm -hmm. So it's not going to be a day, two days. It might take weeks or months mm -hmm. to fix that issue, whatever it is. Just trust the process. That's what I say. I also think there's a lot of power in community. If you can pull alongside you know, instead of it always being this one-on-one, -on -one, mm -hmm. sometimes it can be mm -hmm. a, bring along a friend 
and then mm -hmm. maybe they'll have an in with that person that you don't, or a couple right. of couples together with right. another couple. Right. Just makes it work better. Right. Yeah. I don't know if I'm the devil's advocate or what, but you know, sometimes <laughs> we talk about all this, like God woos everybody and he finds to seek after them and all that. I think of like examples like um, Ananias mm -hmm. in the field thing, and then you know, God is struck him down, like he didn't right. get a second chance, you know? Right. And his wife was the same way. Right. Or like there's lots of stories in the Old Testament about people just the earth opened up and sucked them in, like right. people didn't get a second chance. Correct. You know, so there's those stories, but you kind of wonder sometimes, and you know, I guess you just have to trust God's sovereignty, but there's definitely examples of times when God didn't really give people second chances. Right. You know, no, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. That there are things that happen that are so severe that God brings immediate judgment to you. They have they have an abiding with like in the dedication of the temple, like it had just been said, you will not do this. There will be no strange fire. There's, you're not going to create your own stuff, your ways of worship. And they ignore it, walk in the middle of God's presence, start swinging that stuff, and they're gone. Boom, it's over. You know, it's Achan, where it very much is. You shall not keep any of the stuff from Jericho, because this whole thing has been set apart. And he does. And it's him and his family. There are some things that we can do that can completely blow up our lives. And they can bring the judgment of God. I guess what I would say is those tend to be the exception rather than the rules. I mean, it's legit. It's there, right? And we don't need to shy away from that. Um, but at the same time, I think the general rule tends to be that um, God is more gracious with us than we tend to be with ourselves. And he is more patient with us than we tend to be with ourselves. And for most of us, we end up carrying a guilt that we ought to be something better, ought to be something further, ought to be something deeper. Maybe that's just me. And, um, yeah, Kendall. I think that speaks, too, to the idea that, I mean, we're talking about, like, our role as far as how we can help other people, but we're not above any of this. Right? I mean, that's why it's so important for right. us to monitor our own response and right. to be comfortable with our own grief. I mean, right. the reality is that there's going to be people that we love and we minister to, and they're not going to turn around. And we have to be able to mourn through that and figure out how do we walk with God in this situation and continue to be faithful in spite of that quote unquote failure. Right. You know? And so, right. I mean, it's all. Right. God's deconstructing us too. I mean, we're, you know, He's working on the prophet just as much as He's working on the people receiving the message. Because, friends, we will be betrayed. We will have friends betray us. We will have people we love do something crazy and blow up their lives. Um, the one that rocked me and that really rocked my life was we had very close friends, just insanely close friends. Um, and all of a sudden, 
the emails we were living in Asia at the time, the emails we got back started to get really cryptic. Hmm. And communication kind of stopped. And so as we were coming back to the States, we wanted to kind of see them. And they said, okay, we'll meet you at this time in this place. Well, when they met us at this time in this place, it was she met us at this time in this place. And then she began to kind of hang out with my wife and she shared the story that her husband was now up on criminal child abuse charges. Mm-hmm. And that he just, out of unresolved pain, I, I don't know, like I can't, like there's no way to wrap around it, you know. Unresolved pain, unresolved hurt, abused his daughter blew the whole mess up. Like their family just imploded in an instant. Yeah. Right? And so they had five kids and it's just been painful. Right? I mean, what do you do with that? Like, this guy that we created. Folks, we're going to face that. That's just the reality. But it's also why we really have to let Jesus take the yokes off of us. We really have to let him deal with the places in our lives we'd rather him not touch. We really have to let the grace of God go deep into our lives. And it's never a guarantee because we can do, we can get scared or hurt or and do crazy stuff. But then my question to you is, are you going to find it in your heart to still love him and to show him that you still love him? As a person, yes, that for me would be extremely difficult. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie to you. It took us a while. Um, it took me a while. Um, and I got there, but on his side, the relationship has not maintained. Mm-hmm. Okay. But yeah. Anyway. Well, we're already over, but if there's anything else quick that someone has, it's great to end that sense of cheery note. <laughs> Thomas, let me, but let me do that, though. What is Jonah about? Jonah is about the relentless love of a father who is pursuing his prophet to woo him to to put his very heart and mind and character in it. That's what God's after. That's just the depth of the mercy of the heart of God. And that's our hope. Well, if you've enjoyed our study, what do you think, Brian?